0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hi, my name is Patti Navalta Pobletti, and I'm the author of The Oracles, My Filipino Grandparents in America. I was born and raised here in the Bay Area. Uh, I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle for seven years as an editorial writer and columnist and just recently moved to Honolulu, Hawaii to be the deputy editorial page editor for the Honolulu Advertiser. Uh, I want to give you a little background about how my book came about. Uh, since it wasn't intended to be a book, I actually just wrote this for my kids so that they could appreciate their lives here in America. They were raised by me. I was born here, and um, they had really no idea about my upbringing and what it's like to be raised by people from the old country. So I thought this would be a good thing for them to read. And um, luckily, uh, a publisher, Hay hey Books, thought that it should be a book, and that's how it happened. Um, I, when my grandma Fosta, she was the, my first grandparent who came here to America, when she arrived, I lived in Livermore where there were no other Filipinos that I knew of in the whole city. And actually, I was the only minority in the whole school. So I had a, a very hard time. And when she came, all I wanted to do was really separate myself from her and reject all her lessons. So uh, I'd like to read you a little chapter about what it was like when she first came. This chapter is called The Latch Key Life. The next year was filled with little battles between my grandmother and me. She saw every moment that I watched television, played outside, or stared out the window as signs of my idle nature. Her mission in America was to reprogram me. Every day she insisted on showing me how to mop the floors, help her cook, clean the bathroom, sew, and do the laundry by hand. My hands had become swollen and turned bright red, raw from the endless scrubbing. Not clean enough, she'd say. You're being lazy. I felt like I was in a boot camp, being taught the life of a generation in a culture so far removed from my own that I couldn't begin to understand it. I'd stopped inviting my friends to the house for fear she would hand them a mop or a toilet brush and put them to work. The weekends were a blessing. My parents were home, and my grandmother wasn't nearly as demanding when they were around. She went about doing her household chores, cooking and playing with my brother. I made the most of those days— trying to recapture the charmed life I'd led before she ever came into my world. The only benefit that her presence brought was that I could now leave the house, not that it was easy to escape her grueling chore schedule. I played outside and rode my bicycle until dusk, surrounding myself with the old imaginary friends I'd plucked from TV. I spent hours pretending I was part of an ultra-white suburban family. I played jacks on a square of extra linoleum my dad placed in the garage and sucked on popsicles, and then watch TV until it was time for bed. I often saw Grandma shooting an evil eye at me from the kitchen as she prepared vegetables, snapping green beans with a vengeance, expecting me to come and help. I stayed put, knowing she wouldn't say anything with my parents' home. But every Sunday, she insisted that I attend Mass with her at St. James, the Catholic Church three blocks away from our house. I looked to my mom and dad for refuge. She makes me do everything. She hates me, I'd cry. Listen to your grandma was all they would say. I dragged out my morning routine, hoping she would grow frustrated and leave me behind. But she was there every time, waiting for me at the bottom of the stairs, her face a ghostly white from talcum powder, and her lips stained with coral lipstick. She shook her head, watching me as I came downstairs. You take too long. You're making God wait, she'd say, grabbing my wrist and pulling me along. But it's so boring in church, I'd whine. "'Aye!' she'd reply in shock. "'You have no shame, you American. "'You don't know anything about God. "'You're like sure.' "'The hour of standing and sitting, kneeling and reciting "'seemed like the cruelest, most unusual thing to do to a child. "'But it was during those Sunday Masses "'that I began to see another side of Grandma Fosta. "'I looked over at her hand, small and weathered. "'The wrinkles stretched and intersected "'like an intricate roadmap of her life, "'her polished nails made for a strange dichotomy.' Soft, pearly pink tips like oval shells atop the gravel and sandy terrain of her hands. Woven between her fingers were the dark ruby beads of her rosary. After communion she knelt and bowed her head. She closed her her eyes so tight a crease formed in her forehead. It was always then that I saw her reach into her bag for the pale yellow handkerchief my cousin Risa had embroidered for her, using it to wipe the corners of her eyes.' The choir was singing the communion song, number 215 in the blue book, Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I couldn't imagine what she was asking from God. A better life? More patience? Forgiveness for being cruel to me? Sometimes I thought she prayed I would be a better granddaughter. When we got home, she went straight into her room and sang the loneliest tune I'd ever heard. Her voice strained high and low, like an old violin struggling to find its melody. "'What shall I do, what shall I do? "'My life is nothing without you.' "'She sang the same line over and over. "'I went into my room and put on Casey and the Sunshine Band, "'cranking up the volume until I could no longer hear the sadness from her room. "'Then I lay on my bed staring at the wall where I plastered posters of John Travolta, Donnie and Marie Osmond, and Leif Garrett, "'trying desperately to submerge myself in American pop culture. "'I think she misses the Philippines,' I told my mom.' Maybe we'll send for Grandpa too, she said. I believed that the power of God and religion were strong enough to draw out the shreds of kindness and sentimentality in Grandma Fosta. It was the church's obligatory Sunday Mass that allowed me to witness that side of her after all. But one day, as I was walking past her bedroom, I caught a glimpse of her kneeling by her bed, holding a familiar-looking book. I squinted to see the cover and noticed a symbol of the cross, draped with lavender and yellow ribbons. Then it struck me. She had stolen the prayer book from church. At the foot of her bed was her own personal stockpile of stolen prayer books. I wondered how she managed to dip her finger into the holy water every week without it sizzling on her flesh. That was from The Latchkey Life. Um, By the time all four of my grandparents came, it was the 80s, and um, I was just starting junior high school, which was probably the worst time in the world for all grandparents to come live with a child because uh, that's the height of cool when you want to be cool. And um, having four grandparents tagging along is definitely not cool. So uh, by the time the first day of school came around, MTV had come out and I was really excited and um, I wanted to look like Cyndi Lauper and, you know, Madonna. And, but uh, the first day of school didn't quite turn out the way I thought it would. This chapter is called In the Middle. At 13, when I started middle school, things for me became far more complicated. I had been looking forward to starting middle school all summer. I'd heard about how everybody dressed and spoke and wore their hair. At the time, knickers, also known as pedal pushers, and Mary Jane's shoes were in. Boys were wearing baggy pants with pleats all around the waist and black leather jackets that formed a V in the back. And everyone, no matter boy or girl, had a members-only jacket and a pair of Dickies and Ben Davis pants. It was 1981, and MTV had become my window to pop culture. Everything was loud, music, hair, makeup, personalities. I was emerging as a teenager at a time when music videos and VJs were revolutionizing the way people looked, acted, and dressed. I couldn't wait to make my debut. When I got my upcoming class schedule in the mail, I ripped the envelope open and jumped up and down on my bed, shouting and laughing. My grandmothers yelled for me to stop, saying that I wasn't acting like a young lady. But I couldn't contain my excitement. When the day came, however, after I finished taking a shower, I saw laid out on my bed a red and white t-shirt from the Philippines with a picture of a little girl's face staring back at me. Grandma Patricia had bought it for me as a gift when she came to America, and I had thought that it made a cute pajama top. On the girl's head was a pink hat with bright red yarn braided and sewn onto it to look like hair. Grandma placed the matching skirt below it, large red and pink horizontal ruffles, and the same face and braided hair of yarn on the lower side of the skirt. On the floor, she had placed the shoes she wanted me to wear, black patent leather loafers she had also brought from the Philippines that looked like comfort shoes made for the elderly. I looked over to my closet, where the simple blue jeans and white t-shirt I had originally laid out were now folded and put away. My heart sank. I realized my battle with Grandma Fosta had expanded the boundaries of Kiamba where she came from, and now included La Union, where my other grandparents came from. My battle was now with the Oracles as a group, and I had no idea how great their powers were now that they were together. I started with my Grandpa Paterno. "'Please,' I begged. "'I don't want to wear this to school.' "'But your grandma brought this to you from the Philippines. "'You will hurt her feelings, Neneng,' he said. "'Nothing is wrong with these clothes. "'You will be the most beautiful girl at school.' He held the absurd blouse against my shoulders, and I knocked it to the ground. Even Grandpa Paterno's soothing words couldn't help me today. He looked at me in shock and placed his hand on my shoulder. "'Don't be like that, Nenning,' he said. "'Your grandma is just trying to help you.' I put the clothes on after he left the room and began to cry. I cried when I looked in the mirror and saw how ridiculous I looked, but then I cried even more when I realized how much less independence I had now that all of them were here." Before Grandma Foster arrived, before any of them arrived, I picked out my own clothes, made my own food, created my own companions. I didn't need them here. By the time I went downstairs, my nose was running and my eyes were red and puffy. Grandma Patricia put both her hands together and exclaimed how wonderful I looked. "You look like a teenager now," she said, as if she didn't notice that I'd been crying. "Don't forget your lunch," Grandma Foster yelled from the kitchen. She walked over and handed me the brown bag, neatly folded along the top. As I turned to thank her and say goodbye, I was hit by a strong and pungent odor. I continued sniffing, trying to place the familiar scent. "'Are you cooking something?' I asked Grandma Fosta. "'I cooked the nengdeng and rice,' she said. "'I put them in your bag for lunch.' I wondered at that moment, with all the religion in our house, if God could hear me begging for mercy." Not only was I being sent to school dressed like an overgrown rag doll, I was also going to be carrying a bag filled with fermented fish. While everyone else would be dining on pizza and sandwiches in the cafeteria, I would be lifting the lid of my Tupperware, unleashing a stench that only the grandchild of four insane Filipino immigrants could possibly understand. I felt the moisture return to my eyes as I stood there at our entryway. Three steps forward and I would be out the door, on my way to the next stage of my life. But it wasn't that simple at all. My grandfathers were poised to escort me, and I felt more like I was going back in time rather than stepping forward. All four of them stood there surrounding me, looking proud and emotional. They each had woken up extra early that morning to help prepare me for this day. But what they had prepared me for wasn't the first day of middle school. Instead, it was the first day of school in another country, where children dressed differently and ate differently. They had prepared me for something that was happening thousands of miles away, and I couldn't bring myself to explain that to them. This is America, I wanted to say, but I didn't have the heart. So for that day and for days to come, I left the house as if I were going to school in the Philippines. The other students would call me a fob, fresh off the boat, assuming that I would just come to America. I couldn't explain that it wasn't me but my grandparents who had just come. I continued to wear their clothes and eat their food so that the last bit of the country they left behind would not be taken away from them. Despite my appearance, one boy, Danny Martin, formed a crush on me and followed me home from school one day. I walked quickly, looking over my shoulder at him and feeling a flush come to my cheeks. My stomach felt woozy in a way that I had never felt before. His hair was blonde and disheveled, his eyes were pale blue. That day, he was wearing worn Levi's, a red and blue striped shirt, and white sneakers, the picture of an all-American boy. I looked forward, feeling my heartbeat against my textbooks. Before I knew it, I was home. I didn't know what to do, turn and talk to him, or run inside the house. Shh! I heard the universal Filipino call, a sound like air being let out of a tire. I looked toward our front yard and saw Grandpa Sunday coming from the side of the house, holding a hoe. I knew he had been working on his garden. A surge of panic came over to me as I looked. I saw him look at me and then over at Danny. "'You!' Grandpa yelled. "'Go away!' Suddenly Grandpa was running toward him with the hoe and Danny was racing down the street. All I saw was a flash of red and blue and then the back of my grandfather with both arms raised holding the garden tool. I burst into tears and ran into the house. "'I hate you!' I screamed. "'I hate all of you!' I buried my head in my pillow filled with rage and mortification." That was the last time Danny Martin ever followed me home. So while this book is filled with anecdotes like that, as you can tell, my four grandparents were pretty eccentric. This story is unusual in the sense that I had four of them from very different parts of the Philippines coming to raise me. And and because of that, there were very different traditions that they tried to teach me. But at the same time, I really tried to make this my grandparents' story as much as it was mine. And theirs was very typical, each of their stories, um, of immigrants who come to America to try to find a better life and to try to make money so that they can send it back to those who were left behind. Um, This chapter I want to read to you is about my Grandpa Paterno. And I think you'll find a lot of universal themes in this story. This is called Old Wounds. Grandpa Paterno was having a difficult time finding work. He had heard from one of my dad's friends that there were seasonal jobs on the farms in Salinas, two and a half hours from our house. There, he could harvest and package asparagus, lettuce, and broccoli. During the week, Grandpa Paterno could stay in the sleeping quarters set up for migrant workers, then come home on the weekends. Both he and Grandma Patricia agreed it was the best thing for him to do. Their plan had always been to come to America, make enough money to retire, then return to the Philippines and live a comfortable life on Grandpa Paterno's pension. But both were reluctant to make the decision. They had already been separated for two years when Grandpa Paterno came to America. It seemed that in their quest for a better life, they were often sacrificing each other. Dad assured them that we would drive to Salinas every Saturday to pick him up. Don't worry, he said. You'll see each other every weekend. Grandma Patricia had been crying. It was the night before Grandpa Paterno's departure, and he was packing a week's worth of clothes into his canvas duffel bag. I saw on the floor of their bedroom watching him fold his white cotton undershirts, flannel long sleeves, and pairs of sweatpants and worn denims. Grandma Patricia counted five handkerchiefs out of his drawer and tucked them neatly into the side pocket of his bag, saving an extra one for herself to wipe her tears. Grandma sat at the foot of the bed, silently weeping. I saw Grandpa Paterno move the zipper of his bag slowly along its teeth, careful not to create the zipping sound that would have indicated he was ready to go. I failed to understand what all the melodrama was about. It's not like he's going to the Philippines. You're going to see him every weekend, I said to Grandma Patricia. Don't you know? I cannot live without your grandpa, she said, looking at me through eyes filled with tears and heartache. He is like the statue of my Santo Nino. He watches over me and protects me. The next morning, Dad woke us all up at five so we could hit the road early. On the farm, Grandpa Paterno said, they would be waking up at four or five every morning to start work. Though Dad tried to keep the mood light during the drive, I could feel the weight of Grandma Patricia's sorrow. Grandpa held her hand tightly. My dad pulled up alongside a one-story beige building. The structure was old, with cracked paint and streams of dirt running from its rain gutters. Along the side there were a series of small rectangle windows with bottles of shampoo and other toiletries lined along the sills. Grandpa Paterno grabbed his duffel bag from the van and looked at the piece of paper on which he had written down the address. This is the right place, he said, turning to all of us. He knocked on the door and was greeted by a Hispanic man with a large straw hat. Hola, Grandpa said. I am Paterno. I will be working here. Through the crack, I could see a small sink piled up with dirty dishes and a row of narrow beds covered with brown wool blankets. I pictured Grandpa Paterno lying awake in one of them, staring at the ceiling, surrounded by sleeping strangers, and wondering if this was the America he had long dreamed of. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org/writersblock The Writers Block is produced by KQED. <laughs>